Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. This morning's reading is from Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you so much. Please be seated. Again, I wish to extend a heartfelt greeting to all of you who are here in attendance. Thank you for watching online as well. We are very, very thankful that you made the effort to be here with us and to look at the scripture. The singular person defining Christianity is Jesus, the Christ. The singular purpose defining the Christ is his redemptive act as the voluntary substitutionary once-for-all sacrifice in behalf of his people. And the singular symbol defining the Christ and Christianity is the cross. If that statement is indeed true, then we would do well to sound out the immeasurable riches of Christ. The Apostle Paul states this truth in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. He writes, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, verse 8, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And it is to this task we have been called." And for the last six weeks, we have singularly explored and concentrated on the immeasurable riches of Christ. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, this morning we come with open eyes, with open ears and open hearts. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, guide our thoughts and control our minds, help our affections be drawn to the cross. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. And sometimes it is hard for us to see the difference. This morning, shape our worldview through the lens of your word. May we see all of life through the gospel. It is easy to buy what the world sells, but it isn't right. 
Help us to discern what is true, hold fast to it, and shun the evil. In many ways, we are tired of the struggle. We know we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle, even in the horizontal, is a spiritual battle. Help us to see how our Lord's victory is our victory. This does not keep us from preparing the horse for the day of battle, but we know that the victory is yours. Today, we bring all of these moments to this study. May we continue to push hard into the gospel and then the gospel to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began with an extensive quote representing a false idea concerning the Christian chastisement in Hebrews 12. And I say false, it is not heretical, but it is false. The quote was called from the first listing when researched online. And this week, I offer you a quote representing what I believe to be a false idea concerning the victorious life. And it, like last week's quote, is the first one listed. The quote begins with these words, Living a victorious Christian life should be the desire of every true born-again believer. The Word of God gives one clear instruction on how this is to be accomplished. In the New Testament book of Hebrews 11, verse 6, the Lord declares, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Keeping that verse in mind, one can examine six principles that would be instrumental in attaining victory in one's Christian life. Attaining victory in one's Christian life can be one of the greatest joys of serving the true and living God. When Christians reach the pinnacle of faith, they experience all that God has intended. The six principles noted in the article are all things that you and I are supposed to do. And if you do the six principles, then and only then shall you experience all that God has intended for you. And the burden of achievement rests on you. It is something that you do and that you achieve. Without cherry-picking, the common thread when discussing the victorious life is something that you do to access or achieve victory over a noble foe. Consider the following short statement. The victorious Christian life is the life that is lived by faith in a moment-by-moment surrender to God. Now, the idea that you can personally monitor a moment-by-moment surrender to God is silly. I grew up inside that context. I was saved in 1977. When I was a senior in high school, I immediately went to a Bible college and began studying, and this idea was promoted often, a moment-by-moment surrender to God. And I can vouch experientially that the individual attempting this would be a nervous wreck. The idea that as a New Testament Christian, we need to be or can be more than we are before the Father is sacrilegious. Who you and I are before God is because of who Jesus Christ is is and has done. The idea that our material wealth and personal or social happiness is a direct reflection of our spirituality is both profane and a biblical abomination. All of this is a misuse of the law of Moses and nothing but the product of spiritual charlatans who seek to make material gain and personal power over people by the distortion of the Bible and the preaching of a false gospel. The Bible does not, nor has it ever promised, our best life now. It is a tragic symbiosis between marketing and ministry. Like ancient Israel, the church has committed spiritual adultery by pursuing fleshly appetites. I am not here trying to help you become all that you can in Adam. 
I am here to show you who you are in Christ. Please hear me. Be all you can be, but don't confuse that with biblical teaching. Try harder to be a better child. Parent, spouse, employee, employer, athlete, farmer, etc. But don't confuse that with the Bible storyline. You can do all of it as a Christian, but don't confuse that with Christianity. In many ways, this ties into Martin Luther's contrast between a theology of the cross and a theology of glory. The theologians of glory, therefore, are those who build their theology in the light of what they expect God to be like, and surprise, surprise, they make God to look something like themselves. It is popular, it is powerful, it is prosperous, it has station and status. Yet the theologians of the cross are those who build their theology in light of God's own revelation of himself and Christ hanging on the cross. Why does this matter? Why must we have this idea correct? Well, first, if we do not see ourselves as already in and living the victorious Christian life, we will be like children on a merry-go-round always trying to grab the golden ring. One of the frustrations we have when we talk about the victorious life is that you are actually living the victorious life. The second thing is if we do not see ourselves as already in and living the victorious life, we will be unsettled and believe there is something more to this Christian life. It must be something different than what I have. Such thinking leads to disillusion that leads to a disappointment that births doubt, unbelief, and abandonment. And then finally, if we understand the Christian life, beginning with Matthew 16, 24, and following where it says, If you wish to come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life must first lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a person if he gains the entire world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? As much as I am an American, love America, and believe in her constitution, the current American experience is antithetical to the gospel. The idea that we can become whatever we want simply by applying ourselves is a great idea, but it isn't the gospel. Those two ideas are not the same. We should indeed take advantage of the one even as we live the other. We are first and foremost Christian. For those who live hard, difficult lives, Christianity, Christ does deliver. The gospel is true, and Jesus is with you until he returns. And then you shall physically enjoy his presence forever. The desire of this study is to reshape how we view the Christ life or the Christian life. We want that high that's brought about by weekend seminars, Christian concerts, and well-written novels. But the Christian life is more of the routine and mundane bits and pieces of daily living. This is what that looks like. It comes out of the cross. Rather than good Bible study and good theology governing and guiding, we often allow our experience and emotion to lead and control. But if what we have studied about our union in Christ, right now we are united with Christ And we are in the Spirit, we are living under the new way of the Spirit and the once-for-all, voluntary, substitutionary, sacrificial death that does justify, redeem, 
and placates and meets the justice of God, thus placating the wrath of God, if all that is indeed true, then everything does change. And that's where we are right now, sounding out the immeasurable riches of Christ and the implications of positional truth are far-reaching. It is the truth that makes us free. The Word of God is the active agent that Christ uses in delivering us from our bondage to whatever enslaves us. This is the mission of Christ. Think of these passages, John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The idea of being set free or released conveys more the idea that the hearers were currently in a state of slavery from which they needed to be freed. You and I in Christ are free. John chapter 8, verses 34 through 36 read, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We could expound on that. We have done it already in the past. I'll pass on this moment, but verse 35 The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, which indeed he has, you will be free indeed. In Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Those who believe the gospel are in Christ, and we are walking in the new way of the Spirit, and are free. We are free. And this freedom is not defined by the comfortable life, but by the cross life. And our desire in the study is to see the victory of Jesus. Jesus is victorious in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And all of that has been imputed or transferred to his people, thus causing his victory to be our victory. We are living and in the victorious life. The first thing I want to emphasize in our study is that Jesus is victorious. When we see Jesus, we must understand that he right now is sitting at the Father's right hand. He is victorious over sin and death. The primary passage when we consider this idea is John chapter 16. In John chapter 16, verses 32 and 33, this is the upper room discourse. It runs from chapters 13 through 16. Chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. But before he leaves the upper room and heads toward the garden, we read this statement. Verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. Paul reflects this as well in 2 Timothy. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will be persecuted. It will be unsettling. But take heart. I have overcome the world. If we were to pause for a moment and consider John 16, we would note the context of the verse that has just been read. In John 13, the devil enters Judas. In John 13, the disciples are going to betray him. In John 13, Peter is going to deny him. In chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Regardless of all that, let not your heart be troubled. You have believed in the Father, believe now also in me. The tone in the upper room discourse is ominous. It is dark. He reiterates this darkness in chapter 16, verse 32. 
when he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. And then he makes the statement in verse 33. Where is the peace that we crave in the horizontal found? It is found in him. He promises us conflict, heartache, failure, tribulation, persecution. He promises that. We will have that in this world. But, and the conjunction that is used in the verse forms a transition to what is cardinal. It connects two ideas that are in contrast. In this world, you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. The cardinal matter is that Jesus Christ has overcome the world. He himself contrasts with the dark and foreboding circumstances of betrayal, denial, and death. The placement of this declaration is stunning. The final word to his disciples closes on the triumphant note, I have conquered the world. The but says, though all this is true, and if I were to ask you to share with us where you are right now, emotionally or experientially, many of us would tell dark stories. But be of good cheer. Jesus Christ has conquered. Take courage. Despite the enormity of the burden you are confronted with, and think of where they are at. They are just moments away from the crucifixion. He says to his disciples, who are feeling the weight of that dark moment, take courage. Take courage. And why? Because even before the cross, he says, I have overcome. The idea of taking heart and being encouraged is found throughout the New Testament. And every time that statement is made, it is made in the context of darkness. So wherever you are right now, emotionally or experientially, be encouraged. Take courage. And why? Because he has overcome. Jesus is victorious. Why are we to take this courage? Why are we to be of good cheer in the midst of our crushing circumstances? Because we have overcome the world. Christ is victorious. Not only has Christ done so, but he is doing so. One of our tensions is what this victory looks like right now. What does his victory look like right now? Because as individuals who have emotion, who have experience, we always want to be something we are not or somewhere other than here. But God's victory looks like this right where we are. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass before me. He wanted something other than the cross. Yet, nonetheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Take courage. Take courage. The fullest experience of the victory that has happened is still coming. But it does not diminish the hope we have right now. The second thing concerning this idea of the victorious life is that Jesus Christ has won. He has conquered. The second thing is that by our union with him, all that he is is ours by right. We've touched on this idea already, but that victory has been transferred to us. It's perhaps one of the hardest truths to embrace and realize, and although we have touched on it over the last six weeks, 
Again, let us be reminded of two passages, and then I will introduce 1 John chapter 4, but Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. We know that from Romans 6. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I have no faith in myself. I have faith in the Son of God. Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, Christ is your life, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The believer does not have two lives, his life and our life. No, his life is our life. This is not an arrogant statement. It is a true statement. We make no boast in ourselves of being able to secure all that is now ours. We did not do it. He did. We simply believe that what he has done and is doing is enough. We have said often, Jesus is enough in this life and in the life which is to come. That is a statement of victory. It's a statement of position. Jesus is victorious. We are united with Christ right now. And he is our life. We believe that what he has done and is doing is enough. And because this is true, his victory is our victory. We are living the victorious life. The Apostle John assures his audience in 1 John chapter 4 of this truth. Let me read this for our good. In 1 John chapter 4 verses 13 through 18, we read these two paragraphs. It says, This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges, if anyone believes and confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you acknowledged Jesus? Do you confess Jesus? And I would say that the majority of us, under the sound of my voice, have acknowledged and confessed and believed in Jesus. As a consequence of believing in Jesus, God now lives in us. Woo! And we in him. That is astounding. Verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. One day we shall all stand before God and give an account. In that day, whose work will you rely on? Yours or his? We have confidence in the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Therefore, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. When I stand before the Father, I will be accepted in the Son. I do not fear punishment before the Father. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Because his life, his victory has been transferred to us, we are victorious. Because of this imputation, this transfer, we have no fear in the day of judgment. If right now you are afraid of future judgment and you believe in Jesus, be rest assured that Jesus has taken that load for you. You need have no fear of the day of judgment. Because of this transfer, because of this imputation, we have no fear in the day of judgment. The perfect love of God 
drives out from us this fear of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. We are victorious. The third thing we see, and I'm wanting to say our final point, it just so happens that the final point is long, but it is our final point. His victory is our victory. There is no victory apart from his victory. The victorious Christian life is the Christ life. It's his life. I quote, By the resurrection, God proclaimed his son, Victor, over the whole realm of darkness, and the ground Christ won, he has given to us. For our part, we need not struggle to occupy ground that is already ours. In Christ, we are conquerors. In him, therefore, we stand. Thus, today, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. We do not fight in order to win, but because in Christ we have already won. Overcomers are those who rest in the victory already given to them by their God. Consider the context. It was the primary passage that we read in Romans, but chapter 8. Consider the context of Romans 8.37. Now, the chapter itself is a beautiful chapter. It culminates a section within the book of Romans. And notice now verse 37 and the context of verse 37. But let us read verses 31 through 36 once more and see how it all ties together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Is God for you? Yes, then no one and nothing can be against you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We've heard these truths over and over and over again. Right now, no matter where you are, Jesus Christ and the the Holy Spirit are interceding and advocating for you. Then he says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, here's where we are right now, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We have a poor theology of suffering. Persecution is our lot as Christians. The fact that we are not encountering it like our brothers and sisters in persecuted countries is simply a blessing that we are to take advantage of and share the gospel. But notice what the apostle then says. No, in all these things, in tribulation and distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woo! The word that the Apostle Paul uses in the passage, verse 37, for overwhelmingly conquer is a compound word. It's made up of two words, hooper and nikao or nike. And the word means to vanquish beyond. It's a hyper-conquering. And I know hyper. 
Verses 38 and 39 tell us how we can be this despite our emotional fallout and circumstantial hellhole. So no matter where you are right now, experientially or emotionally, in Christ, you are thoroughly conquering. You are more than a conqueror. We conquer by knowing this, no matter what, no matter what, nothing can separate you from the love of God. He loves you, not because of performance, but because of position. You are in Christ. If someone were to ask you the question, what does the victorious Christian life look like? What would you say? Would we describe the victorious Christian life based on 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 through 28? Listen to what Paul says. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. The night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. It sounds like Paul was in danger. Verse 27, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Is that how we would describe the victorious Christian life? Or perhaps we would read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us. Is that how we would go about describing the victorious life? Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. We are inflicted in every way but not crushed. Right there is the victorious life. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. We read this in Hebrews chapter 12 when we read chapters 10 and 11. Remember Hebrews 11 verses 35 through 38. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Folks, we have victory because Jesus is our victory. He will have the victory. And the life of faith in Jesus is the victorious life regardless of the persecution we endure in this life. He is our hope right now. He is our healing right now. He is our wholeness right now. Jesus Christ is the Christian victory. Those who know tell us that there's a whopping 49 billion in unclaimed funds waiting to be claimed. And more than 3 billion in unclaimed money is returned to its owners by the states each year. It's estimated that about 1 in 10 people have unclaimed cash. 
Are you the one unknown account holder who is due eight million from an estate? Or like the New York resident who recovered four million in 2008 from a dormant brokerage account. In 2012, a Connecticut resident claimed 32.8 million proceeds from the sale of nearly 1.3 million shares of stock. I want to be that guy. If you've never checked to see if you have any unclaimed money with your name on it, there is a way how you can search for a potential hidden windfall. Now, most of those claims are less than $100. But who knows if you're not the one. We have been considering the immeasurable riches of Christ. And I believe that that is the most unclaimed funds that ever existed. Those riches lie dormant, often overlooked, and they are untapped. How can we take advantage of this hidden windfall? There are two competing ideas present in the study. And the question is, who gets to define what success looks like in the horizontal? Do we or does God? The one is man-centered and the other is God-centered. The man-centered approach to success says, success is understanding that you control your destiny. Your destiny is controlled by you and you alone. Take responsibility for your actions and their consequences and you'll find that you naturally become more successful. Triumphalist Christianity boasts in its number, its power, its wealth, its building, its outward success. It leans on the arm of flesh. It preaches an ear-tickling, crowd-pleasing message. It gains celebrity status in the eyes of the world. Throughout evangelicalism, a distorted form of the gospel is spreading rapidly. But it is a mixed gospel at best and a false gospel at worst. It is a gospel of success, a gospel of prosperity, a gospel of self-exaltation, a gospel of empowerment. But the God-centered approach to success says, the Lord gave it and the Lord took it away. Bless it. Be the name of the Lord. The God-centered approach says what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. The gospel-centered approach says, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass before me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The gospel-centered approach says to be content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, it is then that I am strong. The gospel-centered approach says he must increase, but we must decrease. The gospel-centered approach says to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him. The gospel-centered approach says to consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel-centered approach says it is regarding disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt and put whatever nation you'd like in that slot. The victorious life is the life lived by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the Christ life. And today, let us lean into the victory of Christ. Let us rest in his immeasurable windfall. It is all ours in him. Let us learn to tap into it and to wallow in the gospel. Where do we go from here? 
Well, as we slowly build out the gospel, we've been looking into the immeasurable riches of Christ. We must see how the gospel defines us, not our distorted perception of the world's definition of success. You and I need to repent of merging modern marketing with biblical Christianity. We embrace the cross. Secondly, as we study the topic, what strikes you most? I have been encouraging you to take the study beyond the walls of Sunday morning. Think about what has been said. Put it on your media feed. Many talk a good story about discipleship, about mentoring, evangelism, and church growth. But when asked to do the smallest thing, we balk at its inconvenience. See what happens when you begin posting Pastor Pat's pics from the study on your Facebook page or talking about it with your friends. I can assure you that there will be conversation. We always need to become more vocal and visible as to the gospel. And let us make the gospel look like biblical servanthood. And then we do need to pause and ask ourselves how the cross has shaped our thinking, our doing, our talking. And if we are talking wrong, if we are thinking wrong, then change. Do not confuse the horizontal with the vertical. Our tendency is to look around and see people who seem to have a better life than we do. I mean, we come to church and everybody looks happy, right? Everybody seems to make more money. They take more trips and have a loving spouse and all of their 2.5 children seem to obey without struggle or challenge. Their Facebook pictures are glossy and sparkly. They always appear to say the right thing, do the right thing, and their quiet time with God always appears to be abundant and rich. They always have a verse to share. They never appear to have any problems, and when they, they're given lemons, they make great margaritas. We begin to ask ourselves, is that the victorious Christian life? Am I missing something? Don't confuse the horizontal with the vertical. What you see when you see isn't the entire picture. There's a pile of stuff that's going under the surface. The second thing we have to understand is the plasticity of the horizontal does not define the reality of the vertical. Regardless of how they appear to be doing, don't compare yourself against them. Comparison kills contentment. And then finally note that the victorious Christian life isn't defined by what you have, but by who you are, and it is Jesus only who gives you the victorious Christian life. You can chase the golden ring, but do not define the victorious Christian life by that golden ring. In the metaphorical descriptions of your future life with Christ, you shall wear the victor's crown and you will walk the streets of gold. Learn to rest in what is known to be true. Let us not allow our experience to shape our theology. We must interpret our experience by our theology. We must see ourselves in him and claim his victory, resting knowing his will is our life. When we give him all we are, which is nothing, he gives us all he is, which is everything, and that is called the exchanged life. He paid a debt he did not owe for us who owed a debt that we could not pay. And that is one of the beautiful things of the Christ life. We wallow in the generosity of God. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. 
Father, as we consider this, it drives us to the cross. We once more must look at the cross and the consequences of that cross. You have promised us tribulation, but you have told us to be encouraged, to take courage, to not be troubled. And why? Because you have already overcome. Thank you, Father, for your visitation. Holy Spirit, cause us to make much of Jesus. Help us to see how everything that we have is sourced in him. In his absence, we have nothing. But in his presence, we have all things. May we put off all our besetting sins. May we run with endurance the race before us. May we not faint. May we not quit. And may we keep believing in Jesus. Thank you for what is ours in Christ. May we see him as our all in all. We pray in his name with thanksgiving. Amen.